I say this a lot in youth group, and uh, just by way of introduction this morning, I hope that as we sing and we listen to others sing and lead uh, in the way that the Bryants just did, I hope we don't miss the theology, the message of the song and what it is, it is saying to us about God's word and about who our God is, and certainly Jesus, our Messiah. There is many lines in that song that you will find here in Genesis 3, which is Kind of unusual to think about because you think Genesis 3 and, and of course that's very early in the, the Bible and uh, Jesus coming to earth doesn't happen until the New Testament. But I think what you're going to find is a lot of foreshadowing of, of the coming Messiah in our text today. We're really going to be in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 this morning. And I got to tell you a little backstory, so to speak, for why we're going to be in Genesis 3 and 4 today. And it, it comes from a little bit of my educational environment that I, that I work in. And many of you also work in an educational environment. Uh, I'm looking across a sea of audience where uh, many of you are teachers, professors, uh, you, you teach on a regular basis. Uh, many of you are a part of the educational environment because you are still in class. And then I would say most of us, if not all of us, have at some point been in an educational environment because we've all sat in a classroom. And as we think about the educational environment, uh, this past year I had the privilege of teaching a new class. And I don't know how many of you have ever taught a class before, uh, but there is a little bit of extra that goes into a new class, a little extra study, a little extra prep, uh, some new learning, some, some stretching of the mind, so to speak. And I really enjoyed uh, teaching Genesis this year. This was a, that was a new class for me. And so there was some, some study that I had done in college and, and grad school in the book of Genesis. And so it wasn't a totally unfamiliar topic, but it was a new topic to teach. And one of the things that just stuck out to me as I studied the book of Genesis, specifically the first 11 chapters, I just kept coming back to this theme. And then I started finding it in my devotions throughout the rest of the Word of God. And, and so this morning, I'm, I'm really sharing something that God has been speaking to me about this year, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. And I've entitled the message this morning, God Pursues Man. God pursues man. And really, the theme that we're going to find throughout this message this morning is that God wants us to turn from our own way and to restore our fellowship with him, restore our relationship with him. We find that very early in the Bible. And I really, I, I don't want to overemphasize this too early because I don't want to give away the, the conclusion, so to speak, but certainly it's okay to do so. And that is that, that God is following man as man rejects him. And we're going to find that throughout the story. So let's, let's just, by way of introduction to the text, let's think about where we're at, Genesis chapter 3. Well, Genesis 1 and 2, of course, is the creation of the world. And so we know that in the beginning, God created the world. That's, what, that's the beginning of time. God created uh, all that we know that exists, okay? And specifically, we find at the end of that creation, we find the creation of man, the pinnacle of God's creation. And we would say that man is created in the image of God. We say that because that's what God's word teaches us. And then that brings us to Genesis chapter 3, where, where man has the opportunity to uh, follow God's commands, to follow what God has, has asked of him, or to do what he desires. And of course, we know that man chooses to do his own thing, so to speak. Man chooses to go his own way. Man chooses sin. And so let's pick up the story in uh, verse number 8 of Genesis chapter 3. And then we're also going to be in Genesis chapter 4 because I want us to take a look today at the, the first sin and then the second sin, so to speak. I know there was probably sin in between those two, but the first two stories of sin in the Bible, and what we're going to find is we're going to find that man chooses sin 
And then God pursues him. And that's a beautiful thought, that God pursues the sinner. I'm so thankful today that we can still say the same. God is pursuing sinners. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, and let's pick up the narrative there, so to speak, in verse 8. It says, And they heard the voice, that is, Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Skip over to chapter 4. It may just be one page like it is for me. But let's look at chapter 4 and let's look at verse 1. And let's find the second story. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And and she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And look very closely at the reaction of Cain. It says, And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is, brother, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And verse 10 he says, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me, from the ground. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word this morning. I pray that you would allow it to encourage our hearts. May we see truths from your word that we can apply to our lives. Lord, we are so grateful that you are still in the business of pursuing sinners. Thank you for the example that you gave here in the early chapters of Genesis that from the very beginning you love us. You love us unconditionally and you love us so much that even when we reject you, you pursue us. Father, may may we see that great love and choose today to turn back to a right relationship with you. I pray now that you would bless your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we have a very simple outline this morning, and uh, though sometimes I like to alliterate my outline today, there's no alliteration. We're just going to stick very very closely to this this storyline, so to speak, that I've mentioned, this idea that from the very start of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, we find that man falls, man fails, man sins, and that will be true all the way through the rest of Scripture and into the future. We, We understand that man is fallen because of Adam and his choice here in Genesis chapter 3. But then we also find a theme that will we'll carry on as well, and that is the theme that God pursues man. As man rejects God and walks away, God follows. And that is an amazing thought. So I just I want to start very simple. And I understand that many of you will probably fast track in your mind ahead. But I want to slow our thought process down a little this morning and meditate on what it is that this passage is really saying to us. And, and may, it may start somewhat simple, but we'll build. And, and reality is that simple thought is really foundational to the application that we'll get at the end. So we're going to start with the narrative. Then we're going to look at the significance of these elements we're highlighting. And then we'll finish with some application. So let's talk about the narrative. And, and this is, again, very simple thought, but sin happened. 
Sin happened. What do I mean by that? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 and the, the first few verses there, we find this story of Adam and Eve choosing to eat of the forbidden fruit. And then in, in Genesis chapter 4, we find that it is clear as we look at the context there that Cain understood what he was supposed to do, but he chose to do the opposite. Or, or maybe we could just say an alternative plan. He chose to do his own plan. And so sin begins in the history of the world. It begins as a part of this narrative. In our lives, we choose sin as well. Despite knowing what we should do, by the way, I, I think we all understand that because we are image bearers of God, we, we all understand right from wrong. His moral law is written within our hearts, Romans chapter one. We, we understand that, that what, what we do is either right or wrong, and our conscience helps us with that. And so it, even, even fallen mankind understands that, that we have things that we should or should not do. Romans 5.12 uh, says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we all sinned in Adam. Death passed upon all of us in that one moment when Adam chose to sin. And so this was something that, yes, Adam did individually, but really, in many ways, it was a corporate decision that all of mankind made in Adam. You and I, I don't think, have to be convinced of our sin. You and I understand that sin is part of the narrative of our life. Everyone makes the choice to sin. And really, if we want to be even more simple, we understand that sin is anything that we do that is wrong against God. Missing the mark, coming short of God's glory. Of course, we understand Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin is not a, this is not a mind-blowing concept for most of you here today. Sin is a part of our life. It's something that we understand. And we, I think many of you understand that it started right here in Genesis chapter 3. But then there's a little bit more to this story, and this is really where I want us to focus, because this is, the, the idea that man sinned is not a new concept, and, and this next thought is not really a new concept either, but it's just a, the highlight of what we want to focus on today as we meditate on his word. So the, the second thought is not only that sin happened, but in the narrative, we find that God pursues man. You see, the first thing that happens right after Adam sins, in verse 8, we find that it says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then again, in verse 10, it says, and he said, I heard the voice, uh, thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. This is Adam talking. He, he's responding. This is, this is God coming to Adam. Adam is hiding, and yet God still comes to him. Now, the intriguing part about this is that God knows where we are. We can't really hide from God, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that when we get to the significance. The first thing that we see is that God is pursuing Adam, and then we also see that he pursues Cain. If you look at chapter 4, Cain chooses to do what was not acceptable, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. That is, God did not respect Cain's offering. So he did not follow the guidelines that God had given him. And then it says, and Cain reacted incorrectly. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And I love the question that God gives in verse 7. He's, or it's really a conditional question. He says, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. So even in these first two stories, we start finding this theme of God pursuing after man. And the other thought that I wanted to hit before we get into the significance of this idea that man is being pursued by God is, is a, a, I think, a vital element for uh, many of us today. And, and that is that God uses questions as he pursues man. Did you notice that? And we won't be able to return to this in the significance of the application. So I just wanted to purposefully take a side 
road here, so to speak, and consider this thought of these questions that God uses. Look, at, uh, look back at chapter 3. I know we're flipping back and forth between chapter 3 and chapter 4, but look at chapter 3 in verse 9. It says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Does God not know where Adam is? <laughs> Well, of course he knows. He walked right over to where Adam was hiding. I, I, I don't know how close he was, but certainly he was close enough that Adam could hear him. And in my mind, there's kind of this idea, uh, maybe this is uh, adding to the text in a way that is not truly uh, accurate because none of us were there. We don't really know what this looks like. But can't you see God walking over right next to the tree that Adam is standing behind and saying, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And, and it's almost as if, you know, you playing with your little child, right? I, I, I say that because I have a small child. M many of you are not parents yet. I get that. Some of you have already been parents of small children. But I, I love it when Grant, uh, my son Grant, he's two. I love it when he wants to play hide and seek because it's really easy, you know? Um, I say, okay, I'm going to count to 10, which he gets that now. That's a lot of fun. Uh, he likes to count. So, so okay, I'm going to count to 10. You go hide. And what that means is I run out of the room, right? Because he's not actually going to hide. And so I, I say, okay, one, two, and I get the 10. I said, ready or not, here I come. And he pops out, daddy, I'm right here. <laughs> Great job. That was a good, good hiding job there. I mean, it's, isn't it interesting? It's almost the same idea. It's like Adam is trying to hide from God, but can you hide from God? He's omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. You cannot hide from the presence of God. And we'll come back to that in the significance that we talk about in just a moment. But it is interesting to me that as God comes to Adam and Eve, they're hiding and he's asking a question. He's not making an accusation. He doesn't walk up to the tree and pull them out into the open and say, okay, I found you. And so as we think about our interactions with other people, we are sinful people helping other sinful people in a journey towards Christ-likeness. I wonder how often we come to a brother or sister in Christ who has fallen, who has made a mistake, and we come to them with our accusations, and we come to them with judgmentalness. I know what you did, and it was wrong, and you're guilty, and here's the consequences for what you've done. Rather than being like our creator God here in Genesis chapter 3 who comes and asks good questions. Questions that bring obvious conviction because the response of Adam immediately is his own conviction. Look at verse 10. It says, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. More questions from the Savior. He says, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Doesn't God know the answer to the question? And then immediately we go into another side thought that we won't explore today, but Adam does not respond with, yes, I did what you told me not to. He begins making excuses and he begins blame shifting like many of us. So I just wanted to point out this one thought before we moved on, and that is that God uses questions. And if we go to Genesis chapter 4, we'll see the same. He uses questions here. He comes to Cain and he says, why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? He gives him a chance to respond. And he even reminds him, hey, if you do that which is right, if you do that which I've told you to do, won't you be received? Won't you be blessed just like Abel, your brother? But if you continue to do that which is wrong, there's going to be consequences. I couldn't help but think of my, my own parenting, how often I come with the, with the consequences without asking the questions. Parent, are you asking good questions of your children? I know many times you already know the answers. 
I know that many times your children, like Adam and Eve, or even like Cain, may ignore the question. They may respond incorrectly to the question, but are we using the example that God has given us? Are we asking questions? I think it is incredibly intriguing that God doesn't just come in and declare judgment. He is the only one who actually can do so. He is the just, perfect, righteous judge. So could he not come and execute judgment immediately upon the failure of man, and yet he chooses to come and engage and ask questions and allow man to come to the same conclusion? I have done wrong in the eyes of a holy God. So this is a great reminder for us. Don't lead with accusations. Choose to lead with questions as you engage others. But like I said, that was just a purpose uh, purposeful side street, so to speak, because what we're really trying to focus on in this passage is this interaction between man falling, man choosing sin, like you and I do every day, and God pursuing man in his sinful state. I think that is an amazing thought. So let's consider the significance of this simple fact that God pursues man, even though man chooses sin. Let's consider the significance, significance that's a mouthful, of the creator pursuing his creation, the creator pursuing his creation. Consider this. He is the creator of the world. God is the creator of the world. We saw that in Genesis 1.1. And yet, as the creator of the world, uh, when we consider that thought, it, it actually draws our mind to the fact that he is now sovereign over all the world, right? We would, we would draw that conclusion. I think today what we're going to find as we work through some of these significant elements of the, the, the God of creation pursuing after the sinful creation uh, isn't that an interesting thought? Well, as we consider that thought, what we're going to come to is we're going to come to a lot of conclusions about who God is, about who God is. God is sovereign. He is overall. He is creator. He is the one that brought everything into existence. And because of that, he has the authority to be overall, to have control overall. And so then we start thinking about him and his sovereignty that is really intriguing to consider the fact that instead of creation bowing before him in complete adoration, what we find in the narrative, and I know we already looked at it, but what we find in this narrative is that the created being chose to reject the creator and go his own way. Isn't that, isn't that kind of against what even our own human minds would consider the, the natural thing to do? It, understanding that the, the creator of the world, the one who brought everything into existence, a being far superior, far greater, not even on the same scale as the creation, and yet the creation looks in this narrative, that, and I, I believe in our own lives every day, the creation looks at the creator and says, I know what's best, I'm gonna do my own thing. That is, a, is an intriguing thought. And yet, isn't that something that just magnifies or makes bigger the idea that the creator is the one that's pursuing the creation? The, the creation didn't humble itself, did not follow the commands of the creator, and yet the creator still chooses to pursue the creation. Now, to put that in a little bit of context, it's, it's not anywhere close to the same thing. But just consider, I know Dr. Stelzer does this quite a bit, but if you think about the potter, right, the person who's making, uh, making different objects out of, of clay, can you imagine if the clay was unworkable, the clay was not able to be used, what is the potter going to do? As a human being, a potter is going to throw it away. You and I, we do this all the time, not necessarily with clay. Okay, we're not potter. We don't all do that, right? But, but we do this all the time. We have an object that was designed for a specific purpose, and when it no longer fulfills that purpose, we discard it. 
We'd say, okay, this doesn't work. Maybe you try to repair it first, you know, like a vehicle, and you repair it a lot of times, and then eventually you say, okay, enough is enough. I'm done. I'm discarding this. It doesn't fulfill its purpose any longer. And yet, no matter how many times we reject the purpose for which we were created, our God continues to pursue after us. I mentioned that I was a parent a moment ago. It is an intriguing thought as a parent to start thinking about this concept from the perspective of a, can- of a parent. As a parent, there are many times that your kid just by nature uh, chooses to run away from you. And this is a really intriguing thought. You know, I'm thinking about my small children, right? Now, maybe your children are a little bit older and, or maybe you haven't had children yet, but isn't it interesting? Uh, you know, you think about a two-year-old. I have one and, and many of you have seen them around, right? But you think about a two-year-old, their very existence is fully dependent upon mom and dad, okay? Um, without me, my son, will, well, I should say without mom, okay? Without mom, he's not gonna eat anything. Uh, without, without mom and dad providing for how will he exist? And yet, isn't it interesting when, when your two-year-old is upset, what does he do? He turns and he runs away. Why would he run away from the one? Okay, well, now that makes sense to us because we see two-year-olds do it all the time. And what do we see? We see the parent chasing after the child. Well, okay, for example, if my two-year-old is running towards the street, I don't want my child to run into the street. So I'm gonna chase him. Why? Because I love him. And that's really what I'm trying to say with the significance of the creator. Our creator has great love for us. His love is so great. Consider this, no matter how many times we run from God, he continues to chase after us because of his great love for us. It it is something that we say quite often, that God loves us greatly, and it should always amaze us, but yet sometimes we forget how great God's love truly is, that he would continue to choose to pursue after us when we continue to choose to walk away. Matthew chapter 7 As we consider this thought of a parent chasing a child, we certainly see it in our Heavenly Father. Matthew chapter seven reminds us of this. Jesus is speaking, he says, or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. It it is an interesting thing that our God, he pursues us. He loves us so much. And we say, we know how to give good gifts to our own kids. We understand that human parents can give good gifts to their children, yet the the passage in Matthew is reminding us that our God, if, if, if mankind can give good gifts, how much greater can God give as the creator, the sovereign overall, who loves us unconditionally, like no one else will ever love us? And that is the overwhelming story of Genesis 3 and 4. Man falls. And that should not be all that shocking to us because we fall every day. Man falls. What should be truly amazing is that the creator does not discard the man who who chose to walk away. He does not say, let's start creation over again because man chose the wrong thing. No, he pursues man. And even in Genesis 3.15, to to skip to the end of the story, so to speak, the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, the promise that someday one would come and win the ultimate victory. As the Bryant family sang about this morning, Jesus, our Messiah, would someday come and pay the price for sin for man. 
Well, not only do we see that the creator is pursuing the creation, but we also see, and I, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but we also see that God allows for man's free will. And that, I know this is also somewhat of a simple thought, but the fact that God did not force man to obey him and that he gave man a choice to obey is just truly amazing. If you understand why God did that, please, I, I think you're missing the big picture here. This should, this should just amaze you in a way that you just can't fully comprehend this. How could the creator allow man choice knowing that man would choose to reject him? How great a love does our creator have to allow man the choice? This is a humbling reminder that we are choosing to reject our creator and savior, yet it's our choice, and God allows us the chance to make it. That's a very humbling thought. When I choose sin, I made that choice in and of my own self. But it's also an encouraging reminder that God is so great, so magnificent, that he will love and forgive. He will provide a way of escape from the sin that we chose to engage. So we'll, we'll, I told you we wouldn't belabor that point, so we'll just keep going. I want to move into one last thought in reference to this middle portion, the significance of this, this Bible truth, and that is that God chooses mercy. Isn't that an amazing thought as well? And of course, we could dissect these passages and find many more things uh, to uncover. But as we consider this thought that God pursues man, it's interesting that not only is he pursuing man, but he's pursuing man with his mercy. Lamentations, of course, a, a famous passage here in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Isn't it interesting that as God is, is coming to man, he is pursuing man, and man stops and turns, and what does he find? He finds God's mercy. He finds God's mercy. Isn't that an amazing thought? God is extending mercy to you and I, and you say, well, I don't know if God is really extending mercy. You don't understand my circumstances. Well, um, you're alive, so God is extending you mercy. Now think about this. If you know Christ is your Savior, God has extended to you mercy. Think about this. What do you really truly deserve? We think about Genesis 3. We think about Genesis 4 and the failure of man here. What is it that man deserves? Man deserves eternal death in a real place called hell. That is what man deserves. And yet what do we find? We find a merciful God who's providing a way of escape through his own son, th through himself, through Jesus Christ. What an amazing thought. God is not pursuing us to cast his judgment upon us necessarily. God is not necessarily pursuing us with the intent of destroying us. When I, I, I say that because I, I think about pursuing, when I think that word pursue, I have this idea of a person who in battle is running for his life and the enemy is pursuing him with the intent of taking his life. But that's not the idea here, is it? No, God is pursuing with his love and his mercy and his grace, and he's pleading with mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Other passages in the New Testament, uh, that God is not willing that any should perish. He's pursuing man with his love and his mercy. He will not ignore sin, and that is why he sent his son to die. He cannot ignore the, the necessary judgment of sin. He cannot ignore the consequences of our sin. And that is why he gave the great gift of Jesus Christ. And he's pursuing us desirous that we would receive that gift. And if you've received that gift and then you're walking with him but you choose sin again, 
Isn't it interesting that God continues to pursue and he's pursuing with what? He's pursuing with mercy. He wants to provide his forgiveness over and over and over again. If you think about the, the parable of the man who owed a great debt, he owed a great debt to, to the master and he comes and he owes millions of dollars in, Amer in, in today's money, right? He owes a, an unsurmountable amount of money. And the, the master forgives him that great debt. And really, it, there's more to that parable. I understand that. But isn't it a, a great picture of what God has done for you and I? He has forgiven us a great debt. Do you know that forgiveness today? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been running in sin for so long that you've never stopped to see that God is pursuing you? He wants a right relationship with you. And the first step to that is knowing him personally at salvation. Have you trusted Christ as your savior? If you have, are you in, in, a, in a situation where you trusted Christ, but now you've been following after sin? You're, you're walking away from God. So then we come to this, this statement of the application. What does this mean for you and I? If I am still sinful after I know Christ is my savior, how does this influence you and I? Well, it influences us that God is always pursuing us. Where do I stand before God? Well, let's go to Psalm 139 for a moment as we consider this thought of the application of this great truth that God is pursuing you and I. And as we're in Psalm 139, this is a, just one of my favorite passages. Uh, I have a lot of favorite psalms. If, you, if you're one of our teenagers here today, I know many of you are here. Uh, I say that quite often, don't I? This is my favorite passage. So I just say uh, now, I say this is one of my favorite passages because I have a lot of them. Um, this is one of my favorite psalms. And I think one of the, the comforting things about this psalm is, is one of those topics we've already hit this morning, and that is that God is everywhere. He is all-present. He is all-powerful. And what we find in Psalm 139 is we see the positive side of this, right? So Psalm 139, verse 1, it says, Oh, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. That's a scary thought. And yet such an encouraging thought. God still loves me. He still loves me. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about my thought life. He knows everything that no one else knows. And yet he still loves me. And he still pursues me. What an encouraging thought. Verse 2, it says, thou, continuing this idea, he says, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. And we could keep reading. Isn't this a wonderful psalm that, that reminds us that God is all around us? He is, he is all present. There's nothing we can hide from God. But it's also a convicting thought as we consider the fact that there's nothing we can hide from God. Don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can attempt to make excuses for your wrongdoing. What was the mistake that Adam and Eve made in the very beginning when they failed? What did they do? They turned and they blame shift. They try to pretend like it's not their fault that they made the wrong choice. 
But the reality is when we are, when, when it's just us and God, we have no one to blame. We are the only ones at fault for the sin in our life. And so maybe step number one, where do I stand with God? Well, is there sin in my life that's breaking my fellowship with him? Is there sin in my life that's breaking my fellowship with him? Certainly, I, I cannot always see on the outside what other people's situations are, but we all understand where we stand with God. If you go to the end of Psalm 139, at the very last verse, the last two verses, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May that be our prayer today. May it be our prayer that God is using his word to bring conviction of the sin that is in our life that's breaking our fellowship with him. And really that leads us to 1 John chapter 1. So I know I've had you flip a little bit today, but let's go to 1 John chapter 1. Let's look at it. I have it written in my notes, but let's go to 1 John chapter 1 and we'll, we'll kind of finish out here because we can't deceive ourselves. Not only should we not blame others for our sin, but we also should come to this conclusion that we can't deceive ourselves in the, in the matter of our sin. Look at, let's start in verse five in verse, 1 John chapter one. It says, this then is the message which we heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We just read that in Psalm 139. Okay, verse six, it says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Oh, I'm right with God. I'm doing that which is right. Well, you can't say that if there's sin in your life. Don't deceive yourself. Don't, don't follow after darkness when you are saying you're following after the truth or the light. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. There's a progression here. And I'm certainly not going to preach the whole passage. I think you're familiar with 1 John chapter 1. But isn't it interesting? At the beginning in verse 6, it says, If we have no fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Then in verse 8, it says that we, we should not deceive ourselves. And then in verse 10, it says we make him a liar. So if we continue to pretend like there's no sin in my life, what I'm, eventually what will end up being is that I'm saying God's a liar and I am the source of truth. Well, we all know that that is not the, the truth at all. That's completely contrary to what scripture teaches. We know that God is truth. And therefore, we must be the one that is the liar. And that's why verse nine is such a great encouragement. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which leads us to the last thought, and that is that God's forgiveness is ready for me. As he pursues us, what we find is God's forgiveness is ready for me. God is ready and waiting to, forgive, to offer us forgiveness. If we will just confess our sin, if we will turn from our sin and turn back to him, he will restore that fellowship with him. Certainly, we also would think of James chapter four in this situation. James chapter four, verse eight says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, the, the simple truth at the end of, of, of a many thoughts about this idea that God is pursuing us, the simple truth is God wants a right relationship with you and he offers it freely always. The question is, will you receive it? Will you turn from your sin confess it to God, or that word means to call it the same thing as, call your sin what God calls it, turn from your sin and restore your fellowship with him. Allow him to provide the forgiveness that he so greatly wants to give to you. You know, isn't it amazing that we have a God that loves us that much? 
A God that not only did he create us, not only does he understand our frame, but he saved us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And you and I, because of that, you and I, we can have salvation in him, but we also can have fellowship with him. The problem is, many times in our Christian life, we begin down the path of sin, and we, we forget the necessity of confessing our sin. Hey, is there some sin in your life today? I, I haven't mentioned any specific sin at all today, but is the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart about some sin in your life? Maybe it's sin that nobody else knows about. Maybe it is sin that other people know about. Can I tell you something? We have a great God who loves you and is pursuing you, and he is desirous that you will turn, you will repent, and restore your relationship with him. Would you do that today?